With her television good looks, keen intellect, and boundless energy, Madeline was being groomed for a safe seat in Parliament and a ministry of her own. It was only a matter of time, or so they said. Which made it all the more odd that at twenty-seven years of age, Madeline Hart remained romantically unattached. When asked to explain the barren state of her love life, she would declare she was too busy for a man. Fiona, a slightly wicked, dark-haired beauty from the cabinet office, found the explanation dubious. More to the point, she believed Madeline was being deceitful, deceitfulness being one of Fiona's most redeeming qualities, thus her interest in party politics. To support her theory, she would point out that Madeline, while loquacious on almost every subject imaginable, was unusually guarded when it came to her personal life. Yes, said Fiona, she was willing to toss out the occasional harmless tidbit about her troubled childhood, the dreary council house in Essex, the father whose face she could scarcely recall, the alcoholic brother who'd never worked a day in his life, but everything else she kept hidden behind a moat and walls of stone. Our Madeline could be an axe murderer or a high-priced tart, said Fiona, and none of us would be the wiser. But Alison, a home office underling with a much broken heart, had another theory. The poor lamb's in love, she declared one afternoon as she watched Madeline rising goddess-like from the sea in the tiny cove beneath the villa. The trouble is, the man in question isn't returning the favor. Why ever not? asked Fiona drowsily from beneath the brim of an enormous sun-visor. Maybe he's in no position to. Married? But of course. Bastard. You've never? Had an affair with a married man? Yes. Just twice, but I'm considering a third. You're going to burn in hell, Fee. I certainly hope so. It was then, on the afternoon of the seventh day, and upon the thinnest of evidence, that the three girls and two boys staying with Madeline Hart in the rented villa at the edge of Piana took it upon themselves to find her a lover. And not just any lover, said Pauline. He had to be appropriate in age, fine in appearance and breeding, and stable in his finances and mental health, with no skeletons in his closet and no other women in his bed. Fiona, the most experienced when it came to matters of the heart, declared it a mission impossible. He doesn't exist, she explained, with the weariness of a woman who had spent much time looking for him. And if he does, he's either married or so infatuated with himself he won't have the time of day for poor Madeline. Despite her misgivings, Fiona threw herself headlong into the challenge, if for no other reason than it would add a hint of intrigue to the holiday. Fortunately, she had no shortage of potential targets, for it seemed half the population of southeast England had abandoned their sodden isle for the son of Corsica. There was the colony of city financiers who had rented grandly at the northern end of the Gulf de Porto, and the band of artists who were living like gypsies in a hill town in the Castagniccia, and the troop of actors who had taken up residence on the beach at Campamuro, and the delegation of opposition politicians who were plotting a return to power from a villa atop the cliffs of Bonifacio. Using the cabinet office as her calling card, Fiona quickly arranged a series of impromptu social encounters, and on each occasion, be it at dinner party, a hike into the mountains, or a boozy afternoon on the beach, she snared the most eligible male present and deposited him at Madeline's side. 
None, however, managed to scale her walls, not even the young actor, who had just completed a successful run as the lead in the West End's most popular musical of the season. She's obviously got it bad, Fiona conceded as they headed back to the villa late one evening, with Madeline leading the way through the darkness on her red motor scooter. Who do you reckon he is? asked Allison. Dunno, Fiona drawled enviously, but he must be someone quite special. It was at this point, with slightly more than a week remaining until their planned return to London, that Madeline began spending significant amounts of time alone. She would leave the villa early each morning, usually before the others had risen, and return in late afternoon. When asked about her whereabouts, she was transparently vague, and at dinner she was often sullen or preoccupied. Allison naturally feared the worst that Madeline's lover, whoever he was, had sent notice that her services were no longer required. But the following day, upon returning...